I'm Joshua Keiki from The Christian Citizen, and this is episode 29 of Justice, Mercy, Faith. Today, Susan Gottschall, Director of Communications for the American Baptist Home Mission Societies, joins the podcast for a conversation with Christian Citizen editor Curtis Ramsey Lucas on the church's unique role in encouraging and supporting voting. Here now is Curtis Ramsey Lucas with Susan Gottschall. Susan Gottschall is Director of Communications at American Baptist Home Mission Societies and an occasional contributor to The Christian Citizen. Her latest article, One Month and Counting, The Church's Unique Role in Encouraging and Supporting Voting, can be found at christiancitizen.us. Susan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Curtis. It's a pleasure to be here. Your concern with voting uh, dates to your childhood. You grew up in a home in which your parents did not vote. Talk about that experience and how you came to see things differently from your parents. My parents were never politically active, never. um, My parents were not readers. Um, and you know, when you're growing up, you don't question those things, you know, this is the world that you live in and this is the way the world is. And then, um, you know, in high school, I took a civics course and started learning about the role of, um, a participant, you know, participatory democracies and the role of an active citizen and those kinds of things. And, um, I started to see that there were other ways to, you know, live a life and other ways to participate in the world around us. And so my parents would sit at the dinner table and whine and complain about the government did this and the government did that, you know, and eventually I, I said to them, well, you don't ever vote. You've never voted. They've never registered, never even considered voting. So I just told them, being the upstart that I was, that, you know, if they didn't vote, they had no right to complain. And that didn't motivate them either. So, you know, how, it just shows you how much power I had as a, as a, as a, a teenager. So anyway, yeah. So I, I, I was always, I mean, um, I think it's really helpful to grow up um, in, in a, an environment where that's encouraged, you know? Um, this is kind of a different venue, I guess, a different tact, but um, when I was in my 30s, I learned about the 19th Amendment. I, didn't, I had no idea that women didn't have the right to vote until 1920. I couldn't believe it. It was like this whole world of opened up to me and I started reading about it and I got more and more passionate about going to the polls, knowing that in 1918, women were force-fed after they were protesting for the right to vote. And so I brought my daughter up. (laughs) I mean, I remember when my daughter was like a month old, I carried her in that little sack on the front to the polls. And I was so proud that from the time my daughter was one month old, she was being, she was seeing her mother vote she was learning how important it is to participate in the world around us. Um, so, you know, I've always felt thankful for the opportunity I had for education. Um, and I think, you know, as I said, 
uh, it was civics in high school that started to change my perspective. And then that just grew as I, as I, you know, moved through my life. So, yeah. The, the lack of engagement that you uh, experienced with your parents as far as voting um, is something that's reflected in our society today, even, isn't it? Absolutely. I do believe that there are a lot of people who do subscribe to the theory, my one vote doesn't count. And, uh, and it really does count. It counts. There are, there are historical examples of how it counts. Um, even with the 19th Amendment, you know, that was hard to get ratified because, you know, people didn't really, there were people who did not want women to vote. It ended up, I don't know if you know this story, but as I recall, in Tennessee, it was the last state who had to cast, who had to approve this amendment to the constitution. And it was up for a vote in the legislature. And one of the legislators, his mother was sick. She was dying. And she called her son, I don't know if, I, I, I sent him a, a note or whatever and said, please vote for this amendment for your mother. And his vote took it over into, into ratification. So that's an amazing example, I think, of where one vote really counts. But, you know, I also think that along with the concrete examples of one vote counting, I think that there's um, an element of hope in that, an element of faith and an element of saying, I'm going to do my part, sometimes whether it counts or not. But that believing that you can make a difference and you have to try each and every time you can to contribute in any way that you can toward the common good, toward building a better world. So along, you know, so as I said, along with the examples of where one vote has made a difference, we all have to believe that we matter and that our voice matters. And that needs to motivate us to go to the polls and be heard. You mentioned uh, women's suffrage uh, and the 19th Amendment. Um, obviously, the right to vote has expanded over the course of our history as a nation uh, to include groups that were once disenfranchised. What are some ways uh, that states continue uh, to restrict access to the polls? You know, that's not something that I'm, um, I'm real familiar with, but in some of the reading that I did for this story, you know, they've instituted literacy tests and poll taxes and even intimidation, um, which is in this day and age so hard to believe. Um, you know, the Shelby County versus Holder um, civil um, Supreme Court case in uh, 2013 um, um, put holes in the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So some of the intimidation factors and the ways that states were able to discriminate before, you know, which is what the Voting Acts Act, the Voting Rights Rights Act of 1965 sought to dispel, now started seeping back into into. Um, the, the voting environment that we live in, which um, is just tragic. It's just tragic. Um, and I, I have to say, you know, um, we all get busy. 
we all live our lives and there are some things that just sort of fly by us, you know, like when I was doing some reading for this story and, um, and then in the light of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death and, and reading about her, her dissent in this case, Shelby County versus Holder, where she said that, you know, what this, um, what this uh, case is bringing, what these affirmations are doing, it's like being in the rain without an umbrella. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's, it, it takes away all protection. And I found myself thinking, how is it that this got passed and I never even knew about it till now? And that was 2013. Now it's seven years later. And how easy it is when these things don't affect us personally to not know what's going on. Because in the complicated world in which we live, there's so much to know about. There's so much to be wary of and be careful about. So, I mean, I felt really disappointed in myself that I was not more aware of this 2013 ruling and what it meant. And it's just appalling that today, voters are still being, votes are still being suppressed. So we're now uh, one month away from the November 3rd election. And you argue in this article that it's not too late for churches to play a significant role in encouraging uh, and supporting voting. What are some steps that churches can take? Well, you know, um, when I was writing this, I was kind of worried about the registration. I mean, I didn't look at what some of the registration deadlines are, but even past registration, just talking about it. I mean, there's what, three or four Sundays or so left before November 3rd, you know, what, so as you said, I do communications and we, when I'm thinking about how to plan communications, I'm always thinking about repetition. You know, I've heard it said that it takes seven times for a message to be expressed before it gets assimilated. So the more you mention it, the more you make it top of mind, I think, the more people take it in and are more likely to act. So whenever there's a church Zoom meeting, a committee meeting, or a worship service, you know, it could be encouraged. Um, one of the ideas that I that I put in the story is, you know, use the church van to make sure people have transportation to the polls if they need it. Encourage members to provide rides if they can to people. Um, and, um, you know, talk about it and encourage people and... There, you can volunteer at the polls or contact the, the local League of Women Voters and see if there's a way you can, you can um, volunteer through them. Um, I just think the more it's talked about, the more it's encouraged, the more we, all of us, um, share the importance of this election. I mean, you know, I think you'd have to live under a rock to not get all the messages that this is one of the most crucial elections that might be in our lifetime, you know, and you're hearing that everywhere and seeing that everywhere. So the more we impress upon people how very, very important this election is and how very, very important it is for every voice to be heard, I think sharing that message as many times as possible with as much passion and fervor as can be mustered, I think will help. And, you know, I always think 
you know, if it, if it affects one person, if it motivates one person to vote who might not have voted otherwise, it's worth it. You know, I mean, hopefully it will, uh, we can encourage more than just one, but um, any, any person who's maybe never registered and maybe goes to the polls and, you know, I know that sometimes when you go to the polls, you get those little stickers that say, I voted today. And I personally feel really good wearing that sticker, you know? It's like, wow, I did my part today. You know, no matter how small, I did my part and I'm contributing. And for those people who have never done that, well, that's a feeling they should know. <laughs> and I think it's, it's good for the church to encourage that. You note in the article a number of organizations um, and resources that are available to assist churches, including Souls to the Polls and Faithful Democracy. Um, what are these organizations doing and how can churches and church leaders get connected? Well, Souls to the Polls is doing a, a weekly Sunday series. And in the article, there's a link to where you can register and get um, weekly updates, uh, video content, there's Q&A sessions, there's a gospel choir series. So um, that's a great resource. Um, the Faithful Voter Toolkit, again, there's a link in the story, and um, that has some great information. Sermon guides, there's a We Will Vote litany um, on those web pages. They have like pre-packaged social media posts that you can use, talking points. Um, there's a faithful voter pledge that you can take and share with your congregation. So, so there's um, a lot of great um, uh, resources there. The, the unheard, so Faithful Democracy, which is a multi-faith community of organizations and congregations that are supporting democracy reforms, not just this election, it goes beyond that. But for this election, they have an Unheard Voices of Faithful Democracy Toolkit, which um, has four chapters right now. One chapter goes into the history of the franchise, which I think is a great thing to look at. And you could, I think you could study that as a church, you know, in an adult class or something. I mean, I, I didn't get to really, I didn't, I didn't read that. I looked at it, um, but I thought this is something I'd really like to spend some time with at some point. And there's a whole chapter on faithful elections in COVID. You know, I was listening um, to um, an NPR, the tail end of an NPR uh, report yesterday, and some people are suggesting while, you know, and this is a very personal decision, but some people are suggesting that even though you can do mail-in ballots, if you're comfortable, it might be best to go to the polls because there's less question that your vote can be questioned, perhaps, if you actually go to the polls. So, you know, that's um, that's a issue that is, uh, you know, we, we have to consider now because of COVID. So there's a whole chapter in the Unheard Voices, a Faithful Democracy Toolkit that talks about elections during COVID. So there's, there's great resources. And, you know, I found so many resources um, that I wanted to include and couldn't because it would be like a book and then not an article, you know, but you can just Google, you know, um, voting in 2020 um, and a, a myriad of, um, of choices will come up. So 
What would you say to uh, that person who feels their vote is insignificant and is reluctant to vote because of that? I would say you just can't afford to be in that place. Um, your community can't afford for you to be in that place. Um, you have to believe that you can make a difference and you, you can. And um, I would say that just the act of voting, as I said before, um, feels good. It feels good to go to the polls and feel like you're making a contribution and feel like no matter how small, you're part of something much bigger than yourself. And I think as human beings, we need that. We want to be part of a community that's larger than ourselves. We're not creatures that want to be isolated. And we want a voice in the world in which we live. So, you know, sometimes our voice, our vote isn't going to make a difference, sure. Um, but it's like that old, um, you know, I had this friend in college who used to say, you win some, you lose some, but you dress for every game. And I think that applies here, you know? I mean, um, sometimes your vote will seem like it doesn't count, but then there are times that you'll know that it does. But you're always showing up and you're always doing your part. And that's what's important. And what would you say to those who feel uh, inadequate to the responsibility of voting? Um, so in the, in the story, I, I, I talked, I mentioned that. Because that's where my mother was, you know, she, um, she only went, she didn't finish 10th grade. And so she always felt um, lesser than, and always felt like she wasn't very smart. And um, she couldn't talk about things or, but I think that, you know, for me, I was just talking with someone about this yesterday. So when we say, for, say in the instance of electing a president, we elect a president for four years. There's no way on November 3rd that any of us is going to know what that president needs to face in the next four years. So we can't elect somebody who has the skills specifically to deal with any issue that may come up because we don't know that. So at its essence, for me, what I need to do is look at the candidates and pick that person who I believe has the character, has the values, has the perspective, the experience, the presence to make decisions for me. So in that case, you don't need to be a wonk in economics to make it to choose a candidate for president. You don't need to know about all the intricacies of social security or Medicare or health insurance because you can't. Our society is so complex, we could never understand all those things. So we pick people who we trust. We pick people who as much as we can tell are good, decent people who want the best for our country and those that we can trust. So my, this is a long um, way of answering your question, but even if you don't feel like you know about all the issues, pick the person who you trust. Pick the person who you believe will, as close to as possible, handle these situations the way you might have 
the way you might do that. Somebody who will handle challenges with love and fairness and, um, and care and, um, you know, with an eye to equality and equity and fairness. Um, and those are basic values that every single person understands. So I don't think that you need to be expert in the issues for me. I think that, you know, pick, pick a person who's decent, pick a person who cares. And I think that's enough. Any final thoughts for our listeners on what they and their churches can do to encourage and support voting? Well, I just think don't be afraid of it. You know, um, sometimes politics is um, talking about politics is, you know, my dad used to say to me, maybe this goes along with him not, you know, uh, not being um, a voter, but he used to drive a, a route sales truck, a baker, he'd go from house to house and sell bread. And, you know, he used to say there were three things he never talked about, money, politics, and religion, you know? So, and that's why, because it can, it can get confrontational. It can get tense. (laughs) Let me use that word. But this is not the time to be reticent about that. This is the time to say, we all matter we all need to vote. We need to know what the majority wants in this country moving forward. And everybody needs to contribute to that and the church can help make that happen. Susan, thank you for being with us today. Thank you, it was a real pleasure. I want to remind our listeners that you can read Susan Gottschall's latest article, One Month and Counting, The Church's Unique Role in Encouraging and Supporting Voting at ChristianCitizen.us. While there, look for other articles on Christian citizenship in this election season, including a series of articles that we are republishing from Central Seminary's blog series, Beyond the Divisions, Faith and Politics 2020. Also, be sure to subscribe to our weekly e-newsletter to keep current with what we're publishing in The Christian Citizen. Thank you to this week's guest, Susan Gottschall. Our theme music is Believable 2 by Peter Sandberg. The Christian Citizen is edited by Curtis Ramsey Lucas and is a publication of the American Baptist Home Mission Societies. The show, website, and newsletter are produced by myself, Joshua Kagi. Stories are copy edited by Hannah Estefanos. Our art director is Danny Ellison, who's getting married this weekend. Congratulations, Danny. The Christian Citizen editorial board is Dr. Jeffrey Hagre, Laura Alden, Susan Gottschall, Dr. Jeffrey Johnson, the Reverend Salvador Oriana, the Reverend Dr. Marilyn Turner Triplett, and the Reverend Cassandra Karkoff Williams. And our advisors are Sherilyn Crow, the Reverend Kimberly Payton Jones, the Reverend Stephen D. Martin, the Reverend Marvin A. McMichael, and the Reverend Harold Dean. To learn more about the Christian Citizen, visit our website, ChristianCitizen.us. That concludes this episode of Justice, Mercy, Faith. We'll be back with a new episode next week. Thanks for listening.